0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Greater Good, a series of conversations on policies that matter for our future with leaders from government, business, and academia. I'm Melinda Salento, Chief Executive of CEDA, the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. The higher education sector has been hit especially hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. The halt to international arrivals has exposed the gaps in public funding for universities as income from international students has dried up. But higher education will of course be crucial to Australia's economic recovery. It's a key export and a source of skills. So how do we ensure that it continues to support the economy while creating opportunities for everyone? My guest today is Peter Dawkins, who has spent his career addressing that question. He's about to retire as the President and Vice-Chancellor of Victoria University after 10 years in that role, and he's got some fantastic insights around the role of education and how education has to change, but also how we need to do more to help students transition into employment. Welcome, Peter Dawkins.
1: Thank you very much, Melinda.
0: Um, Oh, a stellar career with uh, the universities, Peter. You must be... um you must have mixed emotions as you sign off at this point in time.
1: Yes, indeed. It's been 10 amazing years. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and uh, uh, so, yes, after being a full-on CEO and Vice-Chancellor for 10 years, uh, it is a bit daunting facing the prospect of uh, not being that in about 10 days' time. But, uh, but look, I always thought 10 years was a good period and, um and I think because I knew it was going to end after 10 years, I've been able to keep up a really strong effort over that time and uh, looking forward to, to still being associated with the university after that and uh, I'm really pleased with what we've achieved over that period.
0: It's, it must be, um, well, it, it's a difficult year to have your last year, isn't it? It must be the most challenging year that you've had in your time as the, you know, as you said, as the Vice-Chancellor, the CEO of the university.
1: How's have you oh, look, on COVID? Yeah, look, it's, it's not quite the most challenging year. I might talk about that later. Uh, we've had a number of disruptions uh, in tertiary education that have affected Victoria University over the last 10 years, I'd say four significant disruptions, and this is the fourth one. And it's had the biggest impact of any of the disruptions on the whole sector. Um, there have been others that affected us more, I think, some time ago. But... But in terms of the way we operate on a day-to-day basis, yeah, it was huge because we've had to move off campus most of our activity. And uh, there was one week back in March when we could prepare for going completely on campus with our teaching to completely off campus. And it's amazing what we achieved in that week. And then ever since that time, uh the vast majority of our teaching particularly in higher education which your sector university vocational education is more back on campus already but but in higher education it's been almost entirely uh, what we call digitally remote uh learning and um digitally supported remote learning and it's gone remarkably well uh, and um and the staff have done a great job and we're very fortunate that Prior to this year, we adopted a new form of teaching called the block mode, which we're calling the VUA block mode teaching, which has actually gone very well in this digitally supported uh, version. So, um, so, so that's been good. Of course, there's been financial challenges as well because of the loss of international students, and um, and that's another another significant adjustment that uh, that that's big for the whole sector. Of course,
0: I, I find it interesting. Um You know, the way like universities have have obviously moved very quickly to this completely online, but I was, you know, reflecting that um, a while ago with the advent of, you know, digital technologies, I think there was a period of time when people thought that, you know, universities wouldn't need to have their campuses in the way that they have in the past and that everyone would, would just, you know, gravitate towards online and, I think it's kind of been interesting to reflect on what this period has felt like this year. And, of course, there's always a happy medium, but it it is kind of interesting to look back and sort of think how wrong we got it then (laughs) in thinking where we might
1: head. Yes, absolutely. No, there was around the time that I started as vice chancellor, actually, a lot of speculation that the campus version of university might become obsolete soon uh, because of online learning. and It certainly hasn't become obsolete, but interestingly enough, we've managed to do without them this year. And uh, but I'm sure that uh, next year, campus learning will come back, Uh, and um, but probably different from what it was beforehand, because we've learned a lot from this period of taking advantage of digital resources, and they'll be better used, I think, in the in the future. Um, But yes, the pure online learning which uh which um, which has grown tends to be quite a sort of a segmented market it's it's sort of different from the on campus version and it tends to be sort of full time employees or people with heavy family responsibilities for whom on campus learning isn't really feasible that have gone for the online It's been a big growth industry, but it hasn't stopped on campus learning growing uh at the same time Uh, and it's just that on-campus learning has had to change i think the old-fashioned lecture model is pretty well obsolete Um, we gave it up with our block mode teaching and i think increasingly universities will move away from it that sort of formal learning where lecturers get up and talk for an hour and try and transmit information much of which you can get digitally anyway you know students can't keep that amount of tension going for that long anyway so Yes. So we we went completely away from that before COVID to to small class teaching, thirty yes. in a class, one subject at a time, and uh, you spend you spend uh, about nine hours a week in a typical course with your teacher and with you know thirty yes. other classmates. And it turns out that that's transferred quite well to uh, to digitally supported, you know, on, on Zoom, where you can all be together in a virtual classroom.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to reflect back on university days of trying to sit there and retain interest for, you know, 55 minutes. We, Peter, <laughs> we've discovered with our live streams that after about 10 minutes, people start turning off.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, in the block teaching, we have three-hour, class, three-hour classes, but it's not three hours of lecturing, and there's a break in the middle. And then you have to find what you do is you know I've done some of this myself so when we introduced it I thought well I'll teach a first year economics class just to find out what it's like and make sure we've done the right thing and you you do have to sort of change tack every 10 minutes you might be able to spend five ten minutes explaining something and then you've got to go into a class discussion or problem solving or case study and it's that switching and changing and interactive learning involving the students that's the way you have to keep their attention and it's it's, it's a vastly improved form of learning from the old, the old version, yeah.
0: So that's obviously a learning for you out of the pandemic. Anything else that you'd sort of call out as lessons learned over the last year?
1: Oh, look, um, obviously the Australian our education system has a high level of dependence on international students and... Um, and of course, we're having to adjust at the moment to having fewer international students. And uh, I think that uh, at Victoria University, we one of the good things we've done is that we had diversified our, our student international student base, um, partly because of the way historically it's rolled out and partly deliberately. Uh, so that we're probably not as vulnerable as some universities to individual shocks. What I mean by that is that half our students, half our international students are doing transnational education. That's to say they're studying in their own country. Um, So we've got students in China, in India, in uh, Malaysia, uh, and, and, and other countries. And if they're studying in their own countries, we have been able to keep going with that form of international education. Now, the half that... Studying in Australia, the other good thing is we've got quite a diversified base. We're not too heavily dependent upon China, for example, which is a bit risky probably. So we've got, we we punch our weight in India, but we've got a good diversified base. But of course, this year, new students trying to come to Australia after the pandemic, hit that's not been possible. So, So that's had a big impact on our revenue, in our case, about 50 million revenue, just a bit less, down this year. Now, for a lot of other universities who are more heavily dependent upon students coming, uh, then it's been a bigger impact. And of course, we have to think through. Well, if something like this happens again, we need to be sort of ready for it. And um, and so, you know, that's something I'm sure all the universities all the universities are thinking about. The other thing is, you need to have good financial reserves to deal with this sort of situation. I, I was very aware of that right back 10 years ago when I had a financial crisis, which was actually more challenging than this one. And we didn't really have enough financial reserves, which made it very nerve-wracking whereas over the 10 years we managed to build up a reserve so that we can now adjust to this shock. And we, we plan to return to a to a surplus in uh, in 2023, that's the current financial plan, uh, but we probably take a modest deficit this year, a bigger one next year, and, and a fairly big one the year after 2022, because of the pipeline effect of losing international students. Uh, but as long as we get them back, coming back again uh, in 2022, new students, then we'll we, we'll be okay to return to a surplus Is the current plan, for 2023, albeit we're having to to, to reduce our cost base and we we've, we've had a voluntary redundancy program and so on but but you need to be kind of ready for these shocks we were probably a bit more ready than some because we've been through some significant shocks earlier on in, in, earlier on in my time as vice chancellor,
0: Peter as you're talking i'm thinking obviously on vastly different scales but there's a lot of similarities with some of the things we've actually had to do with cedar um right. you know so number one um we fully understand what it's like to have um some reserves behind you it it it, yeah. makes, it makes tough decisions a little bit less tough, if I can put it that way. Yeah. Um, our membership model is a little bit similar to student model, I think, in the sense that, um, you know, when it takes a bit of time for that to sort of work through the system. So if you lose members, you've, you've got to actually kind of it, – it flows through over time in terms of, of the financial impact, but then, of yeah. course, it takes you a while to to sort of grow them back. So. Um it's, it's interesting when you start talking to people across sectors how you can find these, these threads that are so similar, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the, the industries that were most obviously impacted in the short term, like hospitality and retail and so on, are going through this kind of v shaped recession, big, deep reduction in the short term, and now bouncing back quickly. And yeah. And that, of course, isn't what happens with us. That's, ours is much more U-shaped. Yeah. So, no. <laughs> you know, we already had some of our international students here, and they've been they've been continuing to study. And also, we recruit some from inside Australia. But the ones who were going to come from overseas, you know, they haven't been able to come. But they were just going to be first years or second. Sometimes they join in second year students this year, but then they were going to continue on next year. Yeah. So this pipeline effect means that that uh, in fact there's a bigger loss of revenue next year, even though we're coming out of the, you know, the worst of the pandemic. There's a bigger financial impact next year and a bigger one the year after because of these pipeline effects. So it's very, very
0: it's shaped in
1: our case.
0: I've heard yeah. it described as a bathtub.
1: <laughs> a bathtub, yes. That's a good <laughs> That's way. Yes.
0: A, lo- a long base. Um, yeah. So, Peter, why don't you tell me about some of the other challenges you've sort of been alluding to and you know, what, you, what you've learned about um, you know, Victoria University on the way through and the sector more broadly perhaps
1: yeah look um when i started 10 years ago uh there were a number of things happening that you could describe as a perfect storm really which which were very challenging so um there was the demand driven system started which meant that uh all of a sudden universities were in a much more competitive environment any university could take as many students as they wanted to uh, as opposed to the old sort of quota system where you were more or less guaranteed the number of students each. So, very competitive market. TAFE was deregulated. There were the TAFE funding cuts. Uh, there were lots of mistakes made in policy in Victoria, particularly at that time, which which led to quite a lot of money wasted, public money wasted on on some of the private providers who weren't really providing skills. But the pro- public sector was badly affected. So, we we being a sector University, we were badly hit through that and there was actually a downturn of international students happening at the same time because of changes in visa arrangements and um, so those were the three things that impacted as I arrived and, uh, and, and that led in the short term to a reduction in our revenue and um, our cost base was too high and growing. And so, you know, we, we had a significant deficit in my first year and not sufficient reserves to deal with it easily. Uh, and, um, look, we had to do a fairly major redundancy program over a number of years to get the universe <laughs> into a shape that, that it could handle this environment where you had to be leaner and meaner and, and, and more agile and less bureaucratic and so on. And that's really the story of my first five years, knocking the place into shape to be fit for purpose in a in a you know a very competitive environment. Um, some of the policy settings had settled down a bit at the end of that five years. The TAFE reforms, although we didn't go back to the old regulated model, well, there was a recognition that there was an important role for public vocational education. So, So it turned out to be possible to have a a TAFE business within a dual-sector university. And so the second five years, having, having uh, done some of that heavy lifting, which was quite challenging, quite bruising, quite difficult for the organisation, the second five years we've, we've done a transformational agenda to really grow the revenue and grow demand and have a fit-for-purpose type of education for, for a 21st-century demographic of students because what's happened of course, in in this century has been this big growth of of, uh, of tertiary education in terms of students needing to study that that didn't in the 20th century, that nearly everybody will need a tertiary education, which means that there are many first-in-family type students coming into university, many from more disadvantaged backgrounds who didn't traditionally come to university. Yeah. And, and Victoria University has been at the forefront of that, based in the western suburbs of Melbourne. And uh, and you really got to work hard to support those students to be successful. And and we found that, that traditional form of learning that we were talking about earlier, the lectures with 150 people in them, it's not really that good for anyone, but particularly, yeah, particularly for those who don't have, who 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 haven't been as well prepared for it and aren't from families that are that know what it's all about, you know, and. And the first, six, the first few months of university is very daunting for many of those students when they, and they don't have, they may not have friends there, they don't know the staff, you know. So we found that um, attrition rates were too high, too many students were failing. And so we decided we had to transform our, our style of education and we, um, we decided to have a first year college aimed at first year students. And, uh, and and employ people in it who were very good teachers who knew how to support first year students, for that transition into university. So that was the first step. And then we scoured the world for the best form of teaching and learning for those students. And that's when we found this block model, one subject at a time, small classes. So you do you do one subject in four weeks, and then you know after four weeks whether you whether you've passed or failed your first unit. You're getting good feedback from your teacher. You're your you, people understand your situation. You, you've got connection with your students and your teachers, and this has had an amazing impact on on student achievement, student engagement. We, we measure how engaged students are in their learning. It's absolutely skyrocketed. It's been yeah. the most amazing data that we've seen, and their performance has gone up. Failure rates have gone down. It's,
0: and, it's uh, yeah. It's- it's fascinating peter and I mean it's reminded me I was actually listening to something uh, a week or two ago uh looking at how you get kids from disadvantaged backgrounds highly um, capable kids from disadvantaged ba- backgrounds into university but then also completing it successfully and I, I was looking at some things that were happening in the u s in particular um and you know, it's, it is such a reminder that it's very difficult for people who are not familiar with that background to to actually uh, finish successfully and engage successfully. What, and also, Peter, I know you, you're referring to tertiary, but but that's not university necessarily. It's it's post-secondary, <laughs> which yes. is which is broader. And um, to what extent do you think the lessons that you're learning are being picked up across the sector more broadly to actually get the sort of better outcomes that we need?
1: yeah look a couple of elements to that question one is let me have a go at defining tertiary um by tertiary i basically mean both higher education and vocational education and uh, and you could you could equally call it post-secondary i guess although some post-secondary education um is is helping students just to get back on track to be able to do Tertiary, if you like but uh, but but they're they're more or less the same thing and um in this world where skill and knowledge and capability is so important just about everybody will need a tertiary education whether it's higher education or vocational and Victoria University happens to be dual sector so we've got both of them so we say we can support any student from any background to be successful in tertiary education and and we've our, um, our vocational education we've created a the the Victoria University Polytechnic that provides that provides the vocational education and pathway programs, higher education diplomas, sub-degree programs into into bachelor's degrees. So and I think that model um, is a fantastic model for providing this comprehensive uh, tertiary offer to students. So that for example in the Western of Melbourne we 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 have um, a guaranteed offer. Any student from a school in the western Melbourne is guaranteed a place at V U because because that may not be their first preferred place, but if it's not that, we'll find something that hopefully from which they can pathway into their first preferred place um, so that's the that, that, that idea of the dual sector university see now six in Australia I think will spread, provided the policy settings are right and the funding models get right uh, and the, and there's also reform of some of the some of the curriculum and um, the dual sector. Vice chancellors have had great discussions with, with the ministers at the federal level about this. I think there is an appetite, hopefully, to do these reforms so that we have got a more coherent tertiary sector. And um, so, so that's, that's kind of, uh, that's one aspect. The other aspect um, is about, yeah, the, the, the in-classroom sort of pedagogy. And, and, you know, what we talked about, the small group block learning. That is starting to take hold. Other universities are following suit. Southern Cross University has adopted something similar. Murdoch University, they're doing something like it in the business school. I think the evidence is so clear that it works well, that it's, it, it will be surprising if it doesn't spread mm. more widely in the years ahead.
0: So, Peter, tell me about these, um, the policy priorities or reforms that you, you think are necessary to sort of set that model up for success.
1: Yeah, look, um, the Mitchell Institute uh, at Victoria University, which, I, which you will know well, um, and, and incidentally I'm going to be an emeritus professor in the Mitchell Institute after my, my retirement. I'm calling it a semi-retirement, which I'm <laughs> comfortable with. <that>. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's done a lot of work over the years. Um, in fact, a few years ago I wrote a paper called Reconceptualising Tertiary Education, and uh, subsequently, I wrote one with Peter Noonan, who you will know well. who has been a leader in this sort of policy area, and Peter Hurley, both colleagues at the Mitchell Institute, which was about sort of um, rethinking and revitalising tertiary education. Because although participation in higher education has gone up in the last decade with the demand of system participation in publicly funded vocational education has gone down, mm-hmm. so overall, tertiary participation rates haven't actually gone up, and they, they, they do need to. And, uh, so what, what, what's needed for this more coherent system? Well, firstly, we need a reform of the Australian qualifications framework, which, uh, Peter Noonan himself did the work for government, which will mean a more flexible and coherent qualifications framework where it's easier to mix and match vocational and higher education qualifications and a pathway between them. Uh, we needed a new funding model that to, you've got a sort of a, a common national funding model for, for higher education. There needs to be one for vocational education and, and one that, that blends well with the higher education model and enables income contingent lines to happen for both vocational and higher education. So that's a, a funding model change. We need reform of the curriculum. So vocational education is still too competency-based a too narrowly competency-based needs to be have broader, broader capability development, uh, and uh, and then it will it will both be better for the student in terms of their employability, and it will also mean they can pathway more easily into higher education. Incidentally, higher education pathways into vet are also critically important. In fact, I think there's larger flows in that direction because once you've completed a higher education, very often the practical skill on the end is what's really needed um i actually think that uh, and, and colleagues at the mitchell institute and the dual sector university think that at the diploma level we've um, got higher education diplomas vocational education diplomas from the diploma level upwards there's a strong case for that becoming a commonwealth responsibility so that so that um, the funding of vocational and higher education diplomas is put on the same level and that they become uh, more interchangeable, um, and uh, and 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 then embedded. You know, you could have a vocational education diploma embedded as like the first year in a in a three or four year degree, for example. Um, and then the last one, which I'm particularly working on at the moment, is 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 a greater use of work-based learning, structured work-based learning. Mm. Uh, and you may have seen that with Peter Hurley and David Lloyd in the University of South Australia, we proposed a national job cadet program which would extend the the concept of apprenticeships really. It's like an apprenticeship type model to a much broader range of occupations. Uh, It's too narrow just being in the trades. Um, And, uh, you know, the youth labour market is really challenged. It was before COVID. It's even more challenged now. And... And although the best thing for young people to do is to have the tertiary qualification, that transition into employment is still proving very hard and there are less entry-level jobs. Employers more and more want experience as well as skill and therefore, you know, it's a catch-22, you you get your skill and then you apply for a job and they say, have you got any experience? And, And unless you've had a structured workplace learning experience during your your degree, you know, then you, you may not have that. So we think a National Job Connect program where more and more people get the opportunity to have real employment while they're doing their studies is is a, is a good idea.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting um, concept, Peter, and really touching on some critical challenges. And if I take a step back and I mean, forgive me if I've given you this, um, this sort of analogy before, but... Uh, in a In a prior life, I was sitting on the board of a company that did really big capital intensive projects, and it was dependent on commodity prices and and I thought, well, when commodity prices are high um you can it's you're reasonably comfortable making these big capital investments, but when you've got uncertainty about what the price is, you start sort of breaking things down into little modules, don't you or smaller modules and I think there's a translation to to careers. If you're looking ahead and you're not really sure, you know, I'm not going to be an accountant for life necessarily or I'm not going to be a whatever for the rest of my life, I'm going to have to be much more agile and think about how my skills complement technology, you know, what's my appetite for for doing a, a tens of thousands of dollars worth of course that I do over four years and then I somehow get spat out at, at the other end and hope I get a job? And I think this idea that you do things you learn on the job, you complement your, your your learning at, at a university or um, through vocational education, and you bring the two together in a way that doesn't feel quite such a big investment seems to be the way to
1: go. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I th- look, I think having some technical skills and some discipline knowledge is a good thing, um, and even if you don't end up using that particular techni- technical skill or discipline knowledge in, in, in it, completely in your in your occupation it's still good to have been through a learning experience by that. but on its own that's definitely not enough and you need these broader capabilities you need the critical thinking you need the the problem solving you need the the teamwork uh you need the communication skills these are things that We foster through our block mode teaching incidentally because you're in small groups, it's easier to foster those kinds of skills there. But if you can combine that with some genuine structured employment experience where you apply those skills in a workplace environment, then that's as much what employers are looking for as those those technical skills. And it's this agility, adaptability. Um, You know, this idea that you turn up to work and and you get told what it is you have to do and then you just do it. You know, it's not like that in this changing world uh, that people are looking for employees to be self-starters, to know how to respond to different things, to know how to be part of a team, to deal with challenges and so on, and they need to be starting to learn that You know while they're doing their studies. Some of that can be done in the educational institution, but a lot of it needs to be done in partnership with with employers. I think there is a public policy issue here. Um, you know, when if you go back to the 1980s, I guess, um, then then A, you know, a lot of people weren't going into social education, they were going straight into employment and learning on the job from a lower start and working their way out. Doesn't happen so much now. Um, And then those that were going to university, Victoria University, we started. We were pioneers in this work integrated learning and we had sandwich courses. Some of our best graduates of business, for example, had a year's work experience in their third year very often, Came, came back and did another year at university. By which time they knew a lot about working industry and many of the people they worked with in their sandwich year, they went back and they've been terrific business people. Now, the problem is that with this vast growth of higher education, there are just too many people for industry to absorb into these sandwich courses, particularly and fund them themselves. So there is a public policy issue. You, 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 the education requires – part of the education is the work experience and, uh, and I think government will need to provide incentives and support to employers to, uh, to take on – students you know there's support for capital investment um our tax system is biased towards physical capital investment uh, rather than human capital investment in the in industry and um and they, they they you know there does need to be government industry and institutions which is working together to solve this problem
0: yeah i think i think that's a good point and i think it's um i mean maybe this is a little bugbear of mine peter i think there's so much emphasis on um, employability skills, and um, if only we could get this perfect match of this the skills that employers were going to need in five or seven or ten years' time. And, and I think it's really hard. I think, you know, I've you know, sat in business and the idea that you're somehow looking ahead to ten years' time and understanding fully what skills and how many of them you need, it sounds great in theory, but I think it's just, it's actually really difficult. And I think the broader point is, how do you create um to, to your point in an environment where employers actually are more invested in investing in human capital that they they see you know and it's not this conversation that we hear so much around the costs of employment um, but you know it be it uh, industrial relations and inflexibility or tax or super or whatever that but we start actually opening this up and and start thinking about well how do we create the right incentives to create jobs which is of course, I think the opportunity coming out of COVID, I think we, there's an opportunity to broaden that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and um, uh, thankfully, um, your CEDA Economic Policy Council, I think it's called, with Jeff Balland, we had a good discussion around this uh, this national this national Job Connect program a few weeks ago, and Jeff Jeff is very interested in it, and a number of other people in that. Discussion and um, and we're now in dialogue with both federal and state governments about this idea, uh, and um, so yeah, that was a nice opportunity. And uh, we're working more to um, to refine the proposal and and try and get it up in the in the May budget if we can.
0: Well, we'll uh, watch watch the space and a a good a good cross branding plug there for us, Peter. (laughs) Um, Let let me finish off with something that's near and dear to both of our hearts. Um, I'm an economist, of course, by training. Uh, I've got a sneaky other degree in there as well, but uh, the the conversation for another day. Um, This focus on on training uh, economics training and the number of economic economics grads. There's uh, a lot of talk about the struggle in recruiting people into economics. Well, what's your perspective on that?
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. There has been a decline in economics degrees over a period of time. I haven't looked at the data recently. Before I went to Victoria University, actually, the, 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 the um, there used to be an applied economics degree at Victoria University before I became vice chancellor. That was no longer a major at Victoria University because there weren't enough enough students in it. So obviously they do study economics within within a business degree, and that's becoming increasingly the way. Um, and and yeah, looks there may there may be a shortage. It 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 perhaps has to become more of a postgrad thing. So right. cer- certainly. A, at uh, Melbourne and Monash, they still have the economics programs, uh, and um, uh, but it is it's now a minority. It's now a minority of universities. Uh, so, look, I haven't given it a huge amount of thought. Do you think there is a shortage of, of economics graduates?
0: I'm sure plenty of people would argue that that there aren't, <laughs> but I think. I, I guess, Peter, the way I sort of um, come at it uh, and maybe a little bit of anecdote by way of background. I mean my eldest daughter studied at a public high school here in uh, in Melbourne um, and she they didn't teach economics uh, at her school at all and just wasn't offered and then she went on to university and, and wanted to study economics, not as a pure economics course but as part of, you know, one of the politics uh, economics yeah. sort of blends. And I guess um, – I think you know it's hard for me not to speak with a bit of bias because I think it's served me well in terms of the skills that yeah. it's taught me, and I think it. I think it is a discipline that teaches you good <laughs> skills for a broader application, uh, and as as one of a sort of broader suite of policy and social sciences. Yeah. Or, and I know there's the more mathematical aspects of it, but but I guess it. I, I would be sad to see it not retain that it, to be seen only yeah. in the context of business because I think yeah. it's
1: it, it's a sort of social science more than a business in a way. I mean, you can apply economics to business. You definitely can. There are some economists who think it's really just a public policy discipline I think it's got a lot to contribute to understanding business analysis as well. So you can see it in a business context but it's also a social science and certainly I I mean, economics is what Really motivated me to study I, I came across economics when I was fifteen years old, and I never looked back and it really captured my enthusiasm because it was so interesting and uh, but but I think that's the point about about being so interesting i I, I think what's happen- what needs to happen in education and this could be a way that economics makes a comeback possibly is that that we need to engage, there are too many young people who get disengaged with their learning, and uh, and the way you do engage people in learning is through um, through them focusing on issues and topics that are of keen interest to them, and and it goes back to that kind of problem solving. Okay, mm-hmm. and if you adopt a problem solving approach to education, then. Um, then ultimately, many of the problems that need to be solved require economics to help solve them. And I reckon if you know if if students were studying climate change, you know, if they, for example, um, and they really wanted to figure out how to solve it, it wouldn't be long before they'd have to understand understand economics. You know, if they were concerned with with issues to do with with uh, you know. the 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 global the global economy which is so important for for our future they're going to have to learn some economics and um and i think that possibly you know to become an economist as such and a professional economist is probably more a post-grad thing but Mm. um, but if but if we can get students Really engaged in analysing the big issues of the day at schools or university, then I think you will find they will start wanting to study more and more economics, and then the demand will go up. So anyway, that's an optimistic twist. <laughs> and we'll see how this develops in the years ahead.
0: Yeah, no, and I, it's one I think I've, I probably um, would, you know, would line up with. To be honest, Peter, and I guess that mm-hmm. was my point as well that. You know, to frame economics only in the context of finance and business I think yeah. um, sells, sells it short and the, the tools that you learn and thinking about uh, incentives and, and all the rest of it is actually yeah. really really
1: important. Yeah, absolutely. Look, at, um, at Victoria University, we have in the last year adopted a major focus on what we're calling planetary health in our research and it will increasingly feature in our curriculum. And we're finding that staff, students and the community are fascinated by this concept of planetary health, which, you know, in a world where we've had bushfires, where we've had COVID, um, it, it, it's really focused in mind on issues to do with both the health of the environment, but also the health of the community, which is what planetary health includes: human health as well as environmental health. And we're very focused on place-based planetary health in the West of Melbourne. How do we make our local region? a healthy place from the point of view of uh, of our people and also our environment. And in the western Melbourne, you know, we we we, um, we do have issues, serious issues around chronic disease, for example, uh, as well as actually it's slightly warmer in the West than it is in the East of Melbourne. So the climate change is more noticeable there. There are issues around water and so on. Now, all of those issues have serious economic problems associated with them, and I think that, you know, our students who want to solve these problems will have to study some economics. So thank you for alerting me to that. Before I retire from Victoria <laughs> University, I must go back to my colleagues and say, hey, you're going to have to do more economics to deal with these absolutely. issues. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: We can't we can't let ourselves die out, Peter.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely not.
0: <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure, Peter. Um, I'm so glad to know that you, of course, will not be fading away, uh, rolling yeah. off into the sunset and not continuing to bring your tremendous insights uh, into, the, into the broader sphere of policy and all sorts of other things. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been, you know, obviously you've, you've traversed your 10 years at Victoria University through this conversation, but, you know, obviously you've had a huge impact at the university and I'm sure you will be missed.
1: Uh, thanks very much, Linda, and, um, and I look forward to also following what goes on in CEDA with interest, and um, and I'll do that from the Mitchell Institute. I'm also going to be chair of the Western Melbourne Economic Development Alliance, which we set up while I was at Victoria University, focused on economic development in the Western Melbourne, which CEDA has also taken an interest in, and Wade Noonan is the chief executive, Steve Brax, who will be the chancellor of Victoria University um, next year. I've been his deputy, I'm now going to be chair of WMEDA. So that's another area where we may have things to talk about, but thank you very much. and. Uh, It's been good talking to you.